Morning, Grace. Let's open our Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. Today we are looking at verses 1 through 3, and in two weeks we will finish the rest of the chapter. So I need you to do some homework, and over the next several weeks, make sure you have read chapter 2 and you understand what's going on, because we're going to fly through it in two weeks. Next week, Pastor Greg is going to be preaching, I think this is his third or fourth year, to do a communion, Lord's Supper sermon uh, on Thanksgiving weekend. So I Look forward to that. So today, verses 1 through 3, in two weeks, we're going to do the rest of the chapter. Let's pray as we begin. Father, as we were singing, your son never sinned, but he suffered as if he did. And that is our hope, that the sinless, perfect son of God, Jesus Christ, lived the life that we could never live. And he suffered the death that we all deserve. And you, by your spirit, raised him from the dead. And we cling to that, God. And as Ruth and Naomi could not have known that their lives would be an integral part, play an integral uh, role in your story of bringing your son to this earth, we too, Father, often forget that we are a part of your plan and you are working in our life. Would you open our eyes to understand that and come to grips with your sovereignty today and come to grips with our own responsibility to live out and to see your will accomplished in this world? And would you help us to trust that you are working and orchestrating every detail of our life? Help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Footnotes. We usually don't read them because usually they're boring. Today I want to share a footnote story with you that I think is far from boring. There is a new version of the Bible. It's been out about 10 years, a new Bible translation called the Net Bible. It stands for the New English Translation. But there's also a play on words with the Net Bible because when it came out, they wanted to make it free on the net, on the internet. Another unique aspect of the Net Bible is that it is full of over 60,000 translators' notes, mostly by professors from Dallas Seminary. So sometimes on the page you have about two inches of scripture, and then the other 98% of the page is full of translators' notes, giving you insight into the original uh, Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek languages. One of my professors... Uh, worked on the Net Bible. One of my professors from seminary at Dallas, I spent many hours in his office uh, probing him, asking him questions about the Old Testament, about theology, about prayer. He had a tremendous impact on me. He was working on the footnotes in the Net Bible, translating out of Proverbs chapter 2, before it went to print and before it was available on the internet. As he was translating the Hebrew language, he got a call from a credit card company. And they said, there's something up with your, your uh, account. I can't remember the details. Um, but they said, we need to talk to you. And so you can picture him. He, he's knee-deep in the Hebrew language, translating away in the book of Proverbs, part of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. So he asked the credit card company, can I get your phone number? I need to call you back. I'm kind of busy at the moment. So the person on the other end of the line said, sure, our number is you know, 1-800, yada, yada, yada. He can't find a pen to write with because he's got his Hebrew Bible open and he's typing into his computer. So he proceeds to type in the number right into what he's working on, 1-800, yada, yada, yada. The passage, I'm spitting, sorry. You've probably noticed I do that already when I preach. 
The passage that he was working on was Proverbs 2.16. So he typed the 800 number into the footnotes in Proverbs 2.16, and then he forgot to go back and delete the number. The phone number in the footnotes went unnoticed by the editor, went to print, and the rest, as they say, is history. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 16 in the Net Bible says, to deliver you from the adulteress, from the sexually loose woman who speaks flattering words. And there in the footnote it says 1-800. Actually, the footnote is attached to the phrase flattering words. So as you're reading the verse and you see flattering words in the verse, you see the, the footnote and the number that's attached to it to the phrase flattering words. You go to the bottom of the page and say, what does flattering words mean? mean? And then you see this 1-800 number. An 800 number in a passage about the flattering words of the adulterous woman. You can only imagine what that professor has gone through from his peers. In fact, long after I met him and knew the story, I was driving in Dallas one day and heard Chuck Swindoll tell the story on his radio program. So now it's, it's worldwide. Here's the first beta edition of the Net Bible, which has the 800 number in it. Here is the second beta edition, and there is no 800 number in this one. Footnotes. Sometimes you'll find something interesting hidden away in a footnote. The reality is that our lives are like footnotes, hidden away in the remote scenes of our lives. The sovereign God is working. That's what the book of Ruth is about. It's about the sovereign, good, hidden hand of God orchestrating the lives of two desperate, needy widows. And it reminds us that God is working behind the scenes of our lives as well. How do we reconcile God's sovereignty with my mentor, that professor, typing in that number. Why did God allow that to happen? I have no idea. All I can say is that from Scripture, that God was working through it and purposing through that slip-up to bring glory to his name and good to his people. And the good that has come to me is that I had an opening illustration. In reality, that footnote in Proverbs 2 was really trivial compared to what most of us experience. Where is God when suffering comes our way? Where is God when there is a death or a tragedy, loss and pain? Why does God allow trials, suffering, loss and hardship? That's why we're studying the book of Ruth, so that we can answer those questions. Because we need to be reminded that the sovereign and good hand of God is actively working behind the scenes in our lives, in the hidden footnotes, if you will, for our good and for his glory. Like a hidden footnote, God's hand is often hidden from us. But since we are people of faith... We believe that he is still working behind the scenes, or that's what I want to convince you of today. I want Ruth, I want God's word to convince you that he is working behind the scenes of your life. And because we know that he is working behind the scenes of our lives, even though we can't see him, 
we realize that we must work in the scenes of our lives to do our part. Because he's behind the scenes, often hidden, doing his thing. And we are called in the scenes of our lives to do our thing. That's what we'll see in the first three verses of Ruth chapter 2 today. It is a beautiful picture, a beautiful marriage of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Here's our big idea today. We work with God to wrap up his will in this world. We work with God to wrap up his will in this world. When I say wrap up, I mean to complete, to achieve, to bring about, to accomplish. God is sovereign and he has a plan for this world. It is his world after all. His will is being accomplished and we have a part to play in seeing his will accomplished in his world. And so did Ruth. So let's look at God's word again. Let's go back to chapter 1, verse 22, and let's begin there. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. So Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Remember, we left off last week, Naomi and and Ruth were widows. They had returned to Bethlehem, the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means, at the beginning of the barley harvest. The timing is critical here, and it further points to God's hand, his grace in providing for them as they return to Bethlehem, just as the barley is being cut. This would have been in, in late March by our, our calendars. The barley harvest was from late March to late April. The timing of their arrival points to God's goodness and God's grace in their lives as there will be plenty of food for them to eat when they arrive and for them to glean and to store for the future. And then next, the narrator will introduce us to another character in the story, the man named Boaz. The narrator is giving us more information about Boaz than the characters have at this point. It's like we get this footnote telling us about Boaz. We know more about Boaz, his character, and his wealth at this point than Naomi and Ruth know. Of course, Naomi knew of him because he was a relative of her dead husband's. The reason the narrator gives us more information about Boaz than what the characters have at this point is to build that that sense of suspense and intrigue. Now, notice how the uh, narrator describes Boaz there. He says he was a relative of her husband's. This small bit of information would raise the interest and the curiosity of the readers and the listeners to the book of Ruth, those who would have been familiar with uh, uh, Israelite law and custom. Maybe Boaz, this relative, will come to the aid of one of his relatives. Maybe he will step up and help out his kin. 
Second way he's described is he is a worthy man. It means he's a man of substance and wealth, but also character. He was a, an upstanding man in the Bethlehem community. The narrator here is letting us know that Boaz is not just some run-of-the-mill Israelite. He's a catch, ladies. This, he's got money and he has character. It's the time of the judges. Dark moral period in Israel's history when everyone is doing right in their own eyes. And here we have Boaz, who is a godly man. The reader is even more intrigued. He's a relative, and and he's godly, and and he's wealthy, and he's related to these poor widows. And then the narrator tells us that he's of the clan of Elimelech. He's not some far distant, like fifth, eighth, tenth cousin. He's probably maybe a first or second cousin to Elimelech. He's close to the family. And then he says his name is Boaz. There's debate about what Boaz means, but I think it means strong or vigorous. So you have all of this information. He's a relative. He's a worthy man. He has character. He has wealth. He's like a close, you know, first or second cousin. His name means strong or vigorous. And all of this information, this little footnote that we get that Naomi and Ruth don't have yet, will create this sense of hope for us, the reader and the listener. Will this man, who seems too good to be true, Will he be able to help out Ruth and Naomi in any way? But I want you to notice, too, how the narrator describes Ruth. He calls her Ruth the Moabite. We saw it in verse 1, chapter 22. And she will continue to be called Ruth the Moabite throughout the story. Why does he keep referring to her as Ruth the Moabite? It's like we get it. We know where she where she's from. Why not just put it in a footnote? Ruth, and there's a little footnote, and we look down. Oh, yeah, the lady that came from Moabite, from Moab. She's a Moabite. Two reasons why. One, it serves to highlight her character. Ruth, the Moabite, every time you read it, you scratch your head and say, she's acting more like an Israelite than, than Naomi is. The second thing is it highlights her courage. Ruth, though she is a Moabite, And the Moabites and the Israelites did not like each other. Here she is, this Moabite in Israel, behind enemy lines, if you will. And though tragedy has struck, struck her life, she is determined to move on with her life. She faces the unknown of her future with courage and determination in a foreign land with foreign people and foreign customs. But she does not let all of the unknown paralyze her. Notice that about Ruth. She's not paralyzed about the unknown of her future. Why? I think it's because she trusts and she believes in Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, the God of the Israelites. So let me ask you, what do you do when tragedy strikes your life? Does it paralyze you? Yes, I understand there is that initial uh, sense in which it does when tragedy happens. There's that grief and that sorrow that we experience and that no doubt continues. But we must learn something from Ruth here. We've got to move on. Life goes on after you've experienced a tragedy or some suffering and hardship. You may have experienced a tragedy. You may have experienced great pain in your life, and that pain no doubt probably still lingers, but there comes a time where you must move on and begin taking steps. Why? Because God has more grace to show you in the future, just like he did with Ruth. You see, we work with God. 
to wrap up his will in this world. Ruth does not just sit back and think that somebody is going to eventually come to her aid. Ruth doesn't sit by the phone waiting for it to ring. She moves on. Look at verse 2 again. And Ruth the Moabite, who acts more like an Israelite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. Ruth asks permission of Naomi to go glean. And she's like, I'm hungry. You hungry? I'm hungry. Let me go out. I'm young. I'm strong. Let me go out and glean in the field. I think Naomi probably told Ruth about the custom in, in the land of Israel that the Field owners would let the poor and the down and out come and freely pick food that they wanted. Maybe she had this custom in Moab. I don't know. But either way, we know that the Lord, Yahweh, had revealed in his law particular case laws that govern this very situation. God's law displayed particular compassion on the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, and the poor. So God in his word told those who were landowners to purposely leave grain in the corners of their fields for these poor down and out individuals to come and glean. One of those passages, probably your favorite, Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, says, When you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And there's several other passages, Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 24. This is welfare at its best. It's people working hard to get the handout and not just people getting a handout. They had to work in order to get what was given freely to them. So we're left wondering as Ruth the Moabite prepares to embark on her journey of gleaning in the fields. Remember, it's the time of the judges, morally corrupt. Maybe they've just repented and God is restoring the land. But we begin to wonder here, will anyone reach out to her? We're on the heels of the famine, the time of the judges. Will anyone, will, will, will maybe Boaz, this guy that we've just heard all these great things about, will, will he demonstrate Hesed, loyal covenant love to Ruth the Moabite? Or will the Israelites just shoot for the legalistic minimum, which was not taking advantage of the poor? So Ruth says to Naomi, her mother-in-law, I want to go that I may find favor. She's hoping that someone would show her favor as she walks out into the field. This is important for us to see that she's moving and doing something here as we seek to balance out God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. As I said, Ruth did not just sit around all day waiting for something to happen, wondering what God was going to do. She did the next thing that had to be done. As you are seeking God's will for your life, let me tell you the best piece of wisdom that I could give you is do the next thing that needs to be done. So if you're wondering about what to do in a situation, do you take this job or that job? Do you move to this city or that city? Whatever it is, ask yourself, what's the next thing that needs to be done? And then do that. You see, usually we fret over, you know, next year, next month, next week, maybe the end of the week. And we so much focus on that that we forget that God has something for us to do today. 
not just far away, but today he has something. So if you're at that place in your life and you're wondering, what do I do next? Which, uh, you know, turn in the road do I take? Do I move? Do I take this job? Do I take that job? Just do the next thing that needs to be done. And the next thing that needs to be done might just be, you need to go outside and throw the football with your kids. Maybe that's the next thing that needs to be done that day. Or maybe it's you give your kids a bath and put them to bed. Or maybe you go to small group. Ask yourself, what's the next thing that I need to do? It might just be, I just need to finish work for the day. I need to quit worrying about next week, what's going to happen. I just need to do a good job right now and finish work for the day. And then the next thing might be, now I need to make dinner. And then the next thing might be you give your kids a bath. And then you tuck them in bed and pray for them. And then maybe you need to take a hot bath at that point. And maybe the next thing to do after that is that you just need a good night's sleep. Take it moment by moment, asking yourself, what's the next thing that I need to do? And God's will, God's plan will be accomplished in your life. Do not just sit and wait for some sign because we work with God to wrap up his will in this world, to accomplish and to bring about his purposes in this world. And if there is no next thing to do, then that is a good time to wait on the Lord in prayer with your eyes wide open, and you look for peace, and you look for risk as you're wondering what to do next. You ask questions like, does this take faith? And will it stretch me and cause me to depend upon the Lord? Or is this just something that I want to do, but I don't have peace about it? I once gave a friend some advice who was seeking a new ministry position And this is what I told him. I said, this will cause you to trust in God more, but it's also something that I know that you will love to do. So go for it. You're going to have to trust God more. You're going to have to step out in faith, and you want to do this. It's a ministry position that you love, so go for it. Unless you feel uneasy about it or your spouse doesn't feel good about it, then I said, go for it. There's risk, and there's joy in what you're doing, so dive in. Those are usually my three indicators. You ask people close to you, people that know you well, what do you think about this? Then, and you ask your spouse, ask your spouse first. And then you check your gut. And you pray and you read the word. But I'm going to assume that you're doing that as you're seeking God's will. Listen, there's no easy answer, but here's the great assurance. God is leading us, orchestrating all the details of our lives, even when his hand is hidden. What we may have to do is the next thing. God is working with us. It's the truth of Philippians 2, 12 through 13, talking about sanctification, but just talking about life in general. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says. For, he gives the reason why you are to do your part, because God, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work with God to wrap up his will in this world. Now, let's see what happened to Ruth as she did the next thing, which was, I'm hungry, you're hungry, Somebody needs to go get food. Can I have your blessing? Yes, I'm going to go out and see whose favor I find as I just roam out to some field. Look what happens in verse 3. So Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So Ruth sets out to help 
do her part with God to wrap up his will in her life. And she finds a field and she starts gleaning and gathering all these stalks of barley. But there's something significant that happens in verse 3. It literally says in Hebrew, her chance chanced upon her. Or she chanced upon chance. This does not mean that it was just a happenstance or chance that she came to Boaz's field. This is not a stroke of luck. The narrator knew that every step of Ruth was guided by the sovereign hand of God. But at this point, he writes from the perspective of Ruth. As far as Ruth is concerned, she just stumbled upon this field. Mm, This one looks good. Okay, I'll start gathering. Ruth does not see the hidden hand of God orchestrating every detail of her life. She just picked a field. She took the initiative, and God took care of the rest. God directed her to the fields of Boaz, a man who we will see was capable of redeeming Ruth and Naomi from their plight as poor, destitute widows. By giving us this incident from Ruth's perspective, the narrator is actually emphasizing God's sovereignty. It's as if the author is saying, hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's as if the author is saying, Ruth chanced. Yeah, she chanced upon the field of Boaz. Ruth, oh, she just stumbled upon his field. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. The narrator does not give us a footnote here saying, oh, by the way, God and his sovereignty led her here to the field of Boaz, who she happened to be related to from her dead husband. He doesn't give us a footnote. He expects us to be keen readers and be like, duh, God's at work here. He just says that Ruth chanced on the field of Boaz, and he expects us to be smart enough to pick up at what he's hinting at. The narrator is emphasizing God's sovereignty, God's control, his care in caring for these two widows, even though he does not come out and say it. God's hand is hidden, but it's there. This isn't fate. This isn't chance. This isn't luck. This isn't happenstance. And the average Israelite reading this story would know there's no such thing as chance or luck in our worldview. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The Israelites knew that we work with God to wrap up his will in this world. So if you leave today, I want you to come to grips with it. There's no chance. There's no coincidence. God is sovereign, controlling every detail of your life. A few weeks ago, Heather and I were able to attend our denomination, Converge. They put on a Making Disciples event, and we went up to the Bay Area, and Francis Chan spoke, the author of Crazy Love. Maybe you know him, Forgotten God, and several other books. I want to share a story that he told. If you don't know about Francis Chan, he was the pastor of a large church in Simi Valley, and kind of took his own preaching to heart and said, I'm resigning from the position. We're going to travel, figure out what the Lord wants us to do. And now they're in San Francisco, he and his family, reaching out to the poor and to the homeless. So he moved there with his family, starts reaching out to this apartment complex that they kind of adopted. It's this down-and-out apartment complex. And they go door-to-door, you know, knocking on the door, bringing cookies, groceries, praying for people. In fact, they met, uh, funny story, he met this transvestite guy, cross-dresser guy, and he's like, well, can we pray for you? And 
He says, yeah, and he says, what's your name? And I'm like, it's, it's Bill. So then he's like, as he's praying, he's like, well, Lord, I pray for Bill and pray that you would help him, her, to see uh, that you are real. And, he, you know, he didn't, so he called him him. And his wife later is like, why did you say that? Why didn't you say her? And he's like, because he's a him. And that's how God made him. And even as I pray, I don't want to short circuit that God made him as a him and not as a her. So he's telling these stories, you know, he's like, hey, I'm dealing with, uh, you know, transvestites, and I don't know what I'm even doing. I only know that my name is, I have a girl's name, Francis. That's the only advantage I have. So he tells a story about his daughter, who's like 16 or 17, loves the Lord. She's at In-N-Out, sees this homeless woman outside, comes up to her and says, can I buy you a double-double? And the lady says, sure. She goes in, comes out, gives it to her, and she tells the homeless lady, I just want you to know that Jesus loves you. And she says, you know what, it's a funny thing that you said that. Because as you were walking up with my food, I remembered that I met this man a month ago. And he told me the same thing. He told me what you told me, that Jesus loves me. And she said, and then he told me that there's this pastor that moved from Southern California that I should get in contact with because he's helping the poor and the homeless. And she said, but I can't remember the guy's name. But she told me that I should get in contact with this guy. And so Francis Chan's daughter says to the homeless lady, is the man's name Francis Chan? And the homeless lady says, yes, that's his name. How did you know? And she says, that's my dad. Is that chance? To some people, they'd say, what a coincidence. I would say that God was behind it all, orchestrating every detail. Those people would read Ruth Ruth 2.3 and say that Ruth chanced upon chance into the field of Boaz. And they'd say, what a coincidence. What a chance. What a stroke of luck. Listen, Grace, there is no such thing as chance or fate or luck or coincidence or happenstance. God is sovereign. He led that man there a month before to speak to that homeless woman. He led Francis Chan's daughter there a month later to speak to her. And he led Francis Chan there a year before so that he could start the ministry of reaching out to those people. That is not coincidence. That is not chance. There is one word for that, and that is sovereignty. That God is in control of every detail of every human being's life on this earth. He is in control of everything in his world. That's what I mean when I say he is sovereign. And everything that happens, happens because he is in control. There is not one molecule, particle, atom, grain of sand, human, fish, bird, worm. You fill in the blanks that he is not in control of. He governs this world, his world, and he does so according to his good pleasure. Everything that happens in this world happens because a sovereign God is in control. Everything that happens in this world is designed by God to bring him glory and to bring good to his people. Everything. God is in control of every single detail in this world and he is orchestrating everything so that the best possible world that could have come about since the fall of Adam when he sinned until Jesus returns will come to be. God is orchestrating everything in this life so that the best possible world that could have happened of all the possible worlds that could ever come to be since Adam sinned, he is orchestrating life so that the best possible world will in fact come about.
as John Piper states, the best of all possible worlds means that God governs the course of history so that in the long run, his glory will be more fully displayed and his people more fully satisfied in him than would have been the case in any other world. If we look only at the way things are now in the present era of this fallen world, this is not the best of all possible worlds. But if we look at the whole course of history, from creation to redemption to eternity and beyond, and we see the entirety of God's plan, it is the best of all possible plans and leads to the best of all possible eternities. And therefore, this universe... And the events that happen in it from creation into eternity, taken as a whole, is the best of all possible worlds. But because God is sovereign and controlling every detail, does not give us the right to sit back and say, let go and let God. In fact, the fact that he is sovereign and in control should put wind in your sails to do your part Your actions do matter. The actions of Ruth did matter. She did her part and God did his. God's plan was to provide for Naomi and Ruth and to use them not only to bring King David into this world, but to bring King Jesus into this world. There's no way that Ruth could have known when she said, let me go see if I can find favor from someone in glean. There's no way she could have known that her very life that, that from her offspring would in fact come Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And there's no way that you can ever know right now exactly what God is doing behind the scenes of your life, but he is working grace. We work with God to wrap up his will in this world. So I don't know where you are at today. I don't know what's going on in your world. It's probably different from what Naomi and Ruth went through. It's different from what I am going through. But the truth of the matter is this. We serve the same God. And he is good and he is sovereign. Even when you do not see his hand at work. Even when you scratch your head and say, God, what are you doing? He is working in your life. He is in the details. He is in the smallest details of your life. He is in the footnotes. He is sometimes hidden, but he is there. All things are working according to his good pleasure to bring glory to his own name and to bring good and blessing to yours. So trust him, grace. Maybe you're at a place and you're struggling. Let me give you some homework. Psalm 77, which I just happened to read this morning. I mean, come on. Sovereignty. It's where I left off. Picked up in Psalm 77. The psalmist is doubting God's goodness. Doubting God's sovereignty. Is there still a plan? He 